Welcome back to the Docu Podcast, Shadow of a Mercenary. I'm your host, Kevin E. West, and it's time to get on board and journey into the unique life of Verlin Siefkees, a Kansas crop duster who simply enjoyed painting his daughter's toenails on their porch. But hell, it's easy to be betrayed when no one knows you exist. Whew, that was an episode, my man. Dang. Successful runs number two and three for the government. Amazing. Double agent mastery. And I got so caught up in it, Verlin, that uh, I wanted to make sure I reiterated for the audience, uh, because you're such a humble guy, that when all the guys got arrested in Puerto Rico, it was kind of a big deal, right? That was the largest uh, cocaine bus in Puerto Rican history. I'm guessing you didn't get an employee of the month picture put up on the Colombian's wall. I wasn't too fond of that. I told him I did the right thing. I went and I dropped it. I went around. I landed. Where the hell were you guys? It ain't my fault. Where's my money? You you guys did this shit. I said, can't you guys get anything straight? So I hung out for a day or two, and then I went back to Dothan. Yes, you may have gone back, but run number three did uh, bring you to the Bahamas where you met the lovely exotic Patricia Bowling, which we discussed last episode. You guys hit it off, but, um, you know, provide a little more about her background, man. Well, Patricia Bowling was a petite little... Uh, blonde from Ecuador. She worked Reaganomics in the White House, and she had a job working internationally at the time uh, for a company with a, some sort of magazine publication out of Washington, D.C., a foo-foo-type dealer, international, kind of like a chamber of commerce thing, promoting industries and countries and places. And I met her in the Bahamas while I was waiting for one of these trips i was sitting at the holiday inn and so that we struck up our conversation and relationship uh that way i knew she had the washington connections i knew that the politics were yeah i didn't feel comfortable with the dea customs they were all backstabbing each other i figured i was going to get screwed in the end if i didn't protect myself so i really didn't have anybody to trust and i knew she had all the high power connections so i gave her a list of phone numbers of the smugglers, and I gave her a list of the phone numbers of the government people. I figured that was the only way I could protect myself. And as for as much as we naturally like to think, you know, you're trying to protect yourself from the bad guys, of course, oftentimes it seems it was due to your own side. I mean, pulling commonly withheld valuable information, right? Yeah, he irritated me when he told me they might put somebody on the damned airplane and change the drop zone, which means he already knew they were going to put somebody on the airplane, and he already knew they were going to change the drop zone, which meant I wasn't going to have enough fuel, and he didn't give me that information. Why? Oh, he thought, well, you'd figure it out. You know, you're good. You'll figure it out. He figured I'd, you know, cover everything on the fly. And I don't know why I didn't do it. I told him, I said, you can't do that kind of shit. I don't care if it's your secrecy or your confidential information. I said, if I'm flying the airplane and I'm going to these places, I'm in the middle of it. I need to know what is going to happen. And you got to get your radio frequencies right. Can't be sitting by the helicopter on a secret base that everybody knows where it is, drinking beer, waiting for me to come by and miss the radio call. Mm. You know, so that's kind of how he was. And... How prophetic you were with that gut instinct, Verlin. Dang. Because of this whole backdoor scenario with Pulley, which, you know, was directly related to supposed mistakes, right? So let's let's dive a little deeper on that. Why would you believe Pulley would backdoor you and 
What the hell does that even really specifically mean as a double agent? Back door, I mean, he'd be cutting a deal on the backside. So fully, I think, was pad in his little pocket. And he wouldn't tell me what I needed to know when I took off. For instance, he knew that the Colombians were going to put somebody on that damn airplane when I landed on the peninsula out there. He said to me at a meeting, well, they might put somebody on the airplane. They might change your drop zone. He knew damn well they were going to change put somebody on that airplane, and he knew they were going to change the drop zone, which to him may not have meant much, but when you're flying over the ocean and your fuel is where you have, I mean, you have to have the amount of fuel to get where you're going. And when you overload aircraft, they don't perform like your chart. It wouldn't get as far as I needed to go if you changed the location. You'd run out of gas. And he never told me any of that shit than he should have in the beginning. How is John Pulley padding his pocket by having somebody on a plane with you for side cash for them to change the drop location? What's he getting for it? When he's padding his pocket, he's changed the drop zone or whatever landing at one of those islands. A drum of that cocaine would disappear and one or two of his associates would share in that 30-gallon drum that never got where it was supposed to go. That's how he would do that. He got sent where you weren't going to go so he could get his share of the load. So if there were 20, 30-gallon drums on the aircraft, when you unloaded it at the island, 19 of it got to the government and that was their bust. One drum went somewhere else and it was never recorded. It just disappeared in the pickup truck off in the bushes. And how would that be something that the government wouldn't know about from an inventory recording documentation war on drugs for the people? Oh, hell, they never know about it. You know, those islands are extremely crooked. I mean, everybody's on the tape doing shit like that. So the government would never know about it unless somebody turned him in. And then you'd have to prove that he rat-holed a 30-gallon container full of product. Excellent clarity there, my man. Very nice. And to that point, since it seems even the good guys were busy being criminals, I have to ask, don't get upset at me, but do you think in some ways you sort of got addicted to having a gangster-ish life, or at least, you know, kind of loving the dual life of sort of, you know, the boring crop duster and the exotic double agent mercenary? Or... You know, for you, was it always just a clear end game of just the goal you were trying to accomplish that you started out? Well, I didn't like the gangsters thing. The exotic double agent mercenary, I got into that pretty good. I like doing that. But it at the same time, it was an end to the aim goal for me. I knew I could only do that so long, and I wanted to have my business, everything paid for. And not have to worry about money anymore. So that was an end game, but the double agent, I like doing that. I believe you. I'm just saying the double agent stuff, as we both know, came along with you carrying a gun and it came along with you putting a gun in people's faces. I mean, that's the gangsterish part that I'm talking about. There's just a, there's a reality to it that that kind of comes along with that double agent part. And I'm just saying this, did you really hate having to have those moments throughout this when you, in some ways, dealing with people like Carl London and Max, you got through it, obviously, I understand that. But did, was there part of sort of that gangster feel that you liked or you, you really just got through it? Well, I kind of like being able to stick a gun in a smart ass's face and tell him what to do and watch him uh, quiver, you know, opposed to, I'm going to take you to court. I like the quicker solution to the problem. Okay, now you're going to do this. Do we understand this? And you're 
sitting there with a gun stuck in your mouth, you're not so brave anymore. So, yeah, I guess I kind of like that part of it. Do you think I use the word gangster and I'm trying to denigrate you? I'm not. I'm just telling you that, that what you liked was you liked some of the street justice reality of being a double agent, right? Yeah, I did like that. I liked the street justice of being a double agent. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, that's just one of those, you know, subplot, smaller sidebar subjects, man, I have to ask about because people can get caught up in the life, all kinds of life like that. Uh, and also there's the other side of that, the reality in that life of death and danger. So we got to know, were you ever shot at <laughs> while working for the U.S. government? Oh, all the time in Columbia, taking off, primarily landing a couple times. One evening, it was uh, the army was coming down the road. They never hit anything, but oh, they shot at me one night on the ground while I was hunting fuel. I had to run through the bushes, but uh, they missed. The Colombian police shot at me. So people who were supposedly paid off Berlin were shooting at you? No, this was when we had to make an emergency landing because we were out of fuel and we were stealing fuel uh, from an airport. And so the plane was sitting on the runway and the police came from town and while we were running through the bushes they were shooting at us. Were you ever shot at in the air while flying as a double agent for the U.S. government? Yes, was shot at in the air by the Colombian Army. No, I was never shot at by the U.S. government. Yes, I was shot at by the Colombian Army and guerrillas a couple times and on an emergency landing one evening at a strip where we had paid no one off. Uh, the Colombian police shot at us when we landed and ran through the uh, bushes but they never hit me and they never hit the plane well we're all thankful they never got you verlin but you were naturally good at covering your butt because you were smart enough to start recording pulley which is how you eventually wound up with some 37 tapes to turn over to the media right and and most of those recordings occurred in the hotels oh for the most part there were a couple i recorded over the telephone and uh, but the good ones were from the hotels. I had the voice activated mic and I had it hidden and I had the small recorder somewhere in the room. And uh, that's where I recorded the, the government. But when Pulley was in there, there was usually more than Pulley. If Charlie was with him or a couple other agents, Charlie and him were together most of the time. There was never just one agent at one time. There was always two of them. Did anybody else in your life know that you were recording the government? No. I don't think they did. I didn't tell anybody. If you tell one person, you've told 20. So uh, did Pulley know the sheet? He didn't know the sheet. And once again, similar to no one else knowing about the recordings, you were very careful to ensure that no one else really understood your relationship with the sheet, right? Right. You know, no one knew anything about that until way later. Did you ever argue with Pulley in front of other officials in, an, in any office at any time or threaten him? Oh, hell, I argued with him. I didn't threaten him. I told him, you can't do shit like that. I need to know this or I need to know that. And you can't do this. And I've got, I said, you can't pull shit like that. They'll pick up on it right off the bat. I said, you stand out like a flashing fucking mic. You know, you can't bullshit. You can't really act the part. You can't go to cop school for this shit. You gotta, they'll pick up on it. These people aren't stupid. I understand. Did you have that kind of language, Verlin, to pulley in front of others? Oh, yeah. Sure did. Told him he couldn't do shit like that. And of course, the reason you can't do shit like that 
to a pilot is because there are extreme flying conditions, right? I mean, you're low to the ground, but you got your instrument rating for a reason, and damn, based on what your flying life became, Verlin, thank God you did. So for the audience's sake, please give us a clear explanation so we know of the difference between VFR expertise and license instrument rated expertise in terms of being a smuggler, brother. You know, because we're talking about as it relates to dropping cocaine or flying into tough places and weather and at night, not just basic, but based on being what you were doing for the government, the difference between VFR and instrument rated. Well, you have to be both to do what I was doing. I mean, if you're, that's a totally different situation from civilian uh, because you're flying at night, you have to use your instruments. You're looking for uh, a place in the jungle and you're flying a long way from home. You have to navigate and you're flying into bad weather. You have to be able to shoot an instrument approach. You have to know all your instruments to do that. Uh, and you have to be able to really navigate because that shit quits in bad weather and you're stuck out there. If you don't know what you're doing or where you're at, then you're in trouble. In a civilian uh, explanation of it, you have to see where you're going. You have certain forward visibility and altitude uh, ceiling requirements. You have to be like 1,500 foot above the ground and be able to see a half a mile to be a visual flight instrument. It's a totally different thing. You're just, you see nothing but the instruments in your cockpit. You don't see anything out the window. You're flying in rain and flying totally on numbers and instruments. Do you know of anyone who ever attempted to try and do anything like what you attempted to try and do without having an instrument rating who died? I didn't know that many people doing that. I mean, I did it by myself. Stockwell, he was instrument rated and he did it. But no, I really don't. I didn't associate with a bunch of people doing that type of thing. I mean, you keep to yourself doing it. You don't say, hey, guess what I'm doing at a bar somewhere and start talking. And the other guy says, hey, I'm doing it too. Uh, so, no, there's a lot of planes buried over there and a lot of planes that disappeared from people that took off to go do that shit and make easy money and were never heard of again. Would you have trusted Glenn to be your pilot in a tough situation, yes or no? Yeah, he was plenty experienced. He was Air Force. Tough flight situation, yeah. Since we're on the subject of pulling shit, Verlin, I'd like to remind everyone that while all this government activity is cool, you still have two ex-wives, two kids, and a whole crop dusting life happening simultaneously. And now you're in deep with crooked Max Nichols. So riddle me this, Batman. Before you asked him for a loan and such, you've known Max only for like two or three years, right? Yeah, I knew him for a while. Did Brock McPherson, his business partner, or Max ever attempt to pull you into their circle and involve you in any way in any of the crooked deals and things they were doing? No, he didn't try and pull me into anything. Well, he may not have tried to pull you into anything. However, late in your probation time, he certainly got you into something without even meaning to. Because just prior to all this governmental stuff, you went back home, you hung out with him, got a loan from him, and literally were in debt to him. But maybe more importantly, Verlin, to your story, is that you were out with him one night. Well, you were out one night at a bar in Wichita, Kansas, and... You hang out with him, and boom, you encounter serious trouble in one Judy Popeil. So drop some 411 about Judy. Judy Popeil was about a five foot five short blonde, and I was at a cowboy bar in Wichita, and 
Max Nichols was there. He'd come up and talk to me, and we decided to go out to the bar. Or I don't even remember. We may have flown up there together to go to Wichita. I think he had something to do up there. So we went to the little cowboy bar, and I met her. We exchanged phone numbers. She called me later on, and we had several dates. I wasn't going with anybody. So eventually, we just started hanging out together, and she went to uh, Alabama. She said, well, I'll go with you and help you with your books on the spraying situation. So that's what she did. When did you meet Judy, and where were you living at the time? I was living in Great Bend at the time. I had a little apartment in Great Bend because I had started the flying service there in Great Bend, and I had a little house rented it's about the size of this fifth wheel we're standing in. I had a bed and a table and a stove. And uh, so I was in Great Bend when I met her. Uh, and that's where your predominantly living space was? Yeah, that was where it was. And I had that little house not too far from the airport. Did you, did you have any conversation about suddenly moving to Dothan, Alabama with Judy before you took her down there? No, I had, she knew what was going on. She knew I was going down there to spray. I talked to her about it. And uh, I said, well, you're not doing anything right now. You're currently unemployed. And so why don't you just go along and help? So that's how it started out. We drove a truck down. I had to make two trips. I had to fly the airplane down. I had to come back with the truck and get the car and drive it down. So I had a truck, a car, a tank trailer, and an airplane. So I had to take the airplane down come back and get the other stuff and she drove one of them <laughs> dang verlin honestly man you and women you don't know that well just moving in with you would be an entire whole new podcast and show uh okay so let's recap judy's in dothan patricia's in nassau you've done multiple pre-runs when you were pre-prison now you've done three runs for the government two of which ended in consecutive bus yay team and, you know, you're clearly very astute at playing the game, but the Colombians, we have to be clear, are pissed because they want to know what the hell's going on with their shipments and people being busted. So when the Colombians are not really accusing you, but sort of accusing you, or at least conversations surrounding it, how does that get done? How does that happen? I mean, we lived in a world of pagers back then. I mean, did they talk to you by payphone or in person? I mean, how are they kind of questioning what happened with you? Oh, they had a guy on the island. They've got a guy somewhere that'll contact you. I didn't have a pager down there. They knew where I was. They knew what hotel I was. And so one of them came over to the room and said, oh, man, they had a fishing tournament out there at the same time. And we had a big problem. Wow. You sent Kevin home and you went to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. I sat there and I talked to the authorities for probably the next day. And then I went home. Claire Customs went back to Dothan, Alabama and parked it. I'm pretty sure at the time I went out and flew, uh, you know, my bow weevil contract for two or three days. And then I was supposed to go back down and do a load for the Nassau again, pulling in the Nassau and Peterson too. That time at uh, Stockwell said, what are you doing? So you get back and you go back to your normal life, as I like to say, being a dad flying, you know, crop dusting. And you come back to your plane a few days later, and Stockwell is curious about what the hell you're doing because what had happened to your plane? Oh, yeah. In the, in the meantime, Customs comes out and sticks a sticker on the airplane, so they tag the airplane. So then I had to call Peterson of Miami and said, I can't come down and do this deal because the plane is tagged and you got to get it untagged. He said, who tagged it? I said, Customs tagged it. So he says, well, 
let me call you back. I said, what should I do? Just rip the sticker off and take off? He says, no, don't do that. Let me make a few phone calls first. And I said, well, I'm leaving with it if you don't get something done. So he called Broward Segrist, and Broward Segrist is a U.S. attorney for Alabama. And Broward Segrist called Customs and chewed Customs' ass out and called me up and said, well, you can take the sticker off. And I said, well, everybody saw the asshole stick it on there. You tell them to come out and take it off. So they told him to come out and take it off. And, of course, by this time, Stockwell's wanting to go along and do the thing with me. And he says, what you doing? I want in on it. You're doing something sneaky. And uh, I need the money, too. I'm not doing well with my little fixed base operation you know it's maintenance shop but stockwell had been in the air force yeah he's retired air force so he had some familiarity obviously with planes and so it didn't seem like a big deal for you there's your co-pilot oh yeah he's good good at it didn't have to worry about anything he's good multi-engine pilot and everything else so no i didn't have to worry about it. he was not feeling well though he was not in good health and that was the part that worried me but he for that reason, he needed money also. So I said, well, since you already figured out what's going on, do you want to go along? Yeah, I want to go along. I said, well, you know, the co-pilot gets five grand a trip, you know. So he says, well, okay. So away we went. We had to go back to, yes, yeah, stopped at Miami and talked to Peterson, and then we went on over to Nassau. Okay, so Seagrest untags the plane because he's supposed to because this is a what sounds like an intra-government agency screw-up. Oh, he was pissed. I'm sure he was because he's got a government agency telling him, well, the other government agency screwed up. You shouldn't have to do this, but he had to do it. So he untags the plane. You yeah. grab Stockwell and go, and you got to go down to Miami and meet Peterson and have some sort of prep meeting. We had a prep meeting, and one of the conditions Barrett Seeger said was you got to go ahead and do the mission for these guys. So you have to take the airplane out of the country to do the the mission for the DEA. And I said, well, what can I bring it back then? He says, oh, you better keep it out of the country for a little while. Then you can bring it back. Okay. I guess you meet Peterson in Miami. And what did that meeting look like? Oh, I chewed him out for, you know, them not talk, for Customs and DEA not talking to each other and having that go down in front of all, you know, the people that I worked for there on the Bo Weevil contract, they didn't need to see my airplane seized. That doesn't do my reputation any good. That doesn't make me look good. So I said, that, you guys, you know, that made me mad. It aggravated me. Pissed me off. So he says, well, now watch Pulley when you go over there. You can't always trust Pulley, so watch your back over there. So we went over to Nassau, and over the course of the... We had to restructure the trip that was already scheduled because they had seized the airplane and threw everything out of a time sequence because they had to repay the people in Columbia to use the strip and the general and the people in the sector. They had to repay oh. and reset all of this back up to do the trip. And once again, of course, we find you at your double agent office known as the Holiday Inn, while everyone around you is in on it. I'm meeting with the smugglers, and I'm sitting at one table, and uh, Peterson and Murphy are two tables away, and there's other DE agents in the parking lot, and a couple more down the street in different cars. Peterson's sitting across two tables from me looking at me while I'm eating with these uh, smugglers and everybody's just happy as a bunch of larks it's funnier than hell but all got resolved at the meeting right finally finally that gets taken care of we got cleared to refuel at guantanamo gitmo the naval air station in cuba well wait a second so you you have a meeting in miami then do you have another meeting in nassau with yeah pulley? we had a meeting in miami flew to nassau to meet with pulley and we waited around two or three days till they 
got everything lined up correctly again. But in the meeting with Pulley, I mean, did you not have any meeting with any Colombians or anything with regards to how this was going to happen? Did you ever meet with Colombians in Miami or or Nassau? I was getting to that. Over, over there in Nassau, we met with a uh, Colombian that was from California, and he was putting front money up for the trip. He was the guy putting the front money up. He was a graduate of Southern Cal, and he was putting the front money up to do the deal. So we had to wait for him to repeg and reschedule everything in Colombia. And you're meeting with him in like a hotel room or? Yeah, and that, the Holiday in Nassau again. He comes over and we had, you know, hangs out with us a couple of days. And you got meetings in the room? Well, I had meetings in the room at the bar. Where's Pulley this whole time? Well, we really didn't get good pictures. We want to get some better pictures. So we're going to set you up in the Holiday Inn and you get them to come back over and we'll get some more pictures. So they come in with the same damn lamp with the camera in it. <laughs> and I said, you get that damn thing out of here. I said, they're not that stupid. It doesn't even match the room. It's hard to miss that lamp. And I said, they're going to pick up on that. So I don't want to say the pulley was hands-off because obviously he was the head of you know DEA in Nassau. Yeah, I don't want to say he didn't care, but would you say that pulley was just pretty casual with details and casual with what you needed to know about this run? Oh, sure. He said at one point in time, he said, they may put somebody on the airplane with you. That was the first time. And then he said, they may change your drop location. Well, he knew damn well they were going to change the drop location. I mean, he didn't give me all the facts that I should have to run the trip. Things that change logistically on an airplane that can get you crashed. So, Do you think he ever just flat out lied to you? Oh, yeah. Sure he did. Now, this is coming from the same office that was jealous that you were getting good bus with the DEA in the States. So why would he kind of, in, I guess, a way sabotage what you were trying to do see pulley is dea he's not customs he's the same group but he's the uh nassau station chief for dea he was the head of dea in nassau right so he wasn't getting he wasn't getting bus he wasn't getting he was just sitting there wondering what was happening while what guys in miami were doing good so he wanted to use me i see but if he wanted to use you and do good why would he half-assed details why would he half-ass things that may sabotage doing well that's a good question i have no goddamn idea why he did that wow that's and of course obviously he's in some ways messing with your life oh definitely because i couldn't you know you couldn't do what you were set up to do you know if he does that and they put somebody on the plane well there you are now you got somebody sitting sitting in there listening to what you're saying and that concludes yet another tremendous docu-podcast episode for Shadow of a Mercenary, the life story of one Verlin Keys. I'm your host, Kevin E. West. Please subscribe, share it with friends, and until next time, stay safe and smart. <laughs>